0: Good morning. This is Alan Carroll at Carroll Pharmacy in Smithfield, and we are proud to bring you Hope for Today, a program we hope might help you, inspire you, or encourage you and give you hope for today. My hope is built on nothing
1: less
0: than Jesus' blood and righteousness.
1: Once upon a time, there was a wise man who used to go to the ocean to do his writing. He had a habit of walking on the beach before he began his work. One day, he was walking along the shore. As he looked down the beach, he saw a human figure moving like a dancer. He smiled to himself to think of someone who would dance to the day. So he began to walk faster to catch up. As he got closer, he saw that it was a young man, and the young man wasn't dancing. But instead, he was reaching down to the shore, picking up something, and very gently throwing it into the ocean. As he got closer, he called out, Good morning. What are you doing? The young man paused, looked up, and replied, Throwing starfish in the ocean. I guess I should have asked, Why are you throwing starfish in the ocean? The sun is up and the tide is going out. And if I don't throw them in, they'll die. But, young man, don't you realize that there are miles and miles of beach and starfish all along it? You can't possibly make a difference. The young man listened politely, then bent down, Picked up another starfish and threw it into the sea, passed the breaking waves, and said, It made a difference for that one. Welcome back to another edition of Hope for Today. Some of you may have recognized the piece I just read, The Starfish Story, as it is called, written by Lauren Isley. Since I have had it on my mind to talk today about living a life that matters, I thought that would be a good story to start off with. I have been thinking about people who have lived a life that mattered. And the one-year Christian history book by Michael and Sharon Rustin is full of such people. People like Billy Graham, Dwight L. Moody, George Mueller, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Cory Tin Boom, John Newton, John Wesley, John Calvin, Isaac Watts, Susanna Wesley, Charles Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, and countless others. There are, of course, many people in the Bible who live lives that mattered. God himself inspired people to record the stories of his special children whose lives mattered. People like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Esther, Moses, Daniel, Ruth, David, John the Baptist, the faithful disciples, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Paul, Mary Magdalene, and the list could go on and on. All of us in this country can appreciate the founders of this country who pledged their lives and their sacred honor to win our independence from England. Lives that matter include men and women who believed slavery was wrong, women who fought for the right to vote, inventors, researchers, and those who have discovered cures for various diseases. And you can see that we could have a long and never-ending list of people whose lives have mattered. And each of you have people in your own life who have mattered. It may have been a teacher or a parent or an aunt or uncle, or even a neighbor. Not long ago, I showed a friend at church the obituary of an elderly man from his hometown who had recently died. Just seeing the man, the article in the paper, brought tears to my friend's eyes because he had been one of the teachers at his church and his life had mattered to him as a young boy. There are so many lives that have made a difference, but one that I have chosen today is the story of a man who gave nearly his entire adult life to a cause, and he was literally on his deathbed before he received word that his lifelong efforts had not been in vain. He was dedicated to a cause, and he never gave up. Listen to his story now as recounted in the one-year Christian history book by Michael and Sharon Rustin. William Wilberforce was born to affluence in Hull, England in 1759. His schooling began at the Hull Grammar School, where he came under the influence of two brothers, headmaster Joseph Milner and teacher Isaac Milner. Isaac used to lift the small boy onto a table so that the other students could listen to him read. After just two years in school, William lost his father and was sent to live with his aunt, a staunch Methodist. By 14, Wilberforce had already developed a social conscience and he wrote a letter to the local newspaper on the evils of the slave trade. He completed his education at St. John's College, Cambridge, where he largely wasted his time. However, in 1780, he was elected to Parliament, and that was about age 21, where he became a supporter and confidant of William Pitt the Younger, the British Prime Minister. Pitt persuaded Wilberforce to focus his efforts on the abolition of slavery. In 1785, Wilberforce was looking for someone with whom to tour Europe when he ran into Isaac Milner, now a tutor at Cambridge. On impulse, he invited Milner on the expense-paid trip. Had Wilberforce known that Milner was a committed Christian, he would not have extended the invitation. As Wilberforce and Milner traveled together, they began arguing about religion. The arguments started to dissipate as they read together The Rise and Fall of Religion in the Soul by Philip Doddridge, an evangelical English pastor. By the end of their trip, Wilberforce had given intellectual assent to many of the teachings of the Bible, but once back home, he returned to politics and put religion on a back burner. The next year, Wilberforce took Isaac Milner on another tour of Europe. This time, they studied the Greek New Testament together. Wilberforce later said, I now fully believed the gospel and was persuaded that if I died at any time, I should perish everlastingly. Wilberforce was miserable, realizing that he must choose between Christ and the world. But he wanted both. Needing someone to talk to, he went to see his boyhood hero, John Newton, the former slave trader who now, at 60, was a London pastor and the author of Amazing Grace. On December seventh, 1785, he left John Newton's home with the decision settled. He had chosen Christ and committed himself to being God's man in politics. Wilberforce became the leader of a group of wealthy Anglican evangelicals who lived mainly in the hamlet of Clapham, three miles from London. They became known as the Clapham sect, although they were in no sense a sect. They were more like a close family, determined to change the world for Jesus. The group included an amazing galaxy of talent. The Governor General of India, the Chairman of the East India Company, the Under Secretary for the Colonies, and a leading attorney. Intimates of the group who did not live in Chatham included Isaac Milner, Greenville Sharp, and Charles Simeon. Together, they formed a remarkable fraternity, unique in British history. They determined which wrongs needed to be righted and then delegated to each person the work he could best perform for their mutual goals. The first great achievement of Wilberforce and his friends was the abolition of the slave trade in 1807. But the abolition of slavery itself proved a tougher goal to achieve. On July 26, 1833, at the age of 73, Wilberforce was on his deathbed. Late that evening, he received word that the Emancipation Act freeing the slaves of the British Empire was assured of passing. His final political goal had been reached. Three days later, he died. If the United States had not declared its independence from England in the Revolutionary War, slavery would have ended in America in 1833 without the Civil War. And then under the Reflections It says it took 46 years for William Wilberforce to achieve his goal of abolishing slavery in the British Empire. Has God called you to a cause? If you feel discouraged because things seem to be moving slowly in spite of your efforts, remember Wilberforce and don't give up. Yes, indeed. William Wilberforce was dedicated to a cause and he never gave up. I want to read you some of his most or his more famous quotes. Let it not be said that I was silent when they needed me. If to be feelingly alive to the sufferings of my fellow creatures is to be a fanatic, I am one of the most incurable fanatics ever permitted to be at large. There are four things that we ought to do with the Word of God. Admit it as the Word of God. Commit it to our hearts and minds. Submit to it and transmit it to the world. It is the true duty of every man to promote the happiness of his fellow creatures to the utmost of his power. If you love someone who is ruining his or her life because of faulty thinking, and you don't do anything about it because you are afraid of what others might think, it would seem that rather than being loving, you are in fact being heartless. To live our lives and miss that great purpose we were designed to accomplish is truly a sin. It is inconceivable that we could be bored in a world with so much wrong to tackle, so much ignorance to reach, and so much misery we could alleviate. So enormous, so dreadful, so irremediable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I, from this time, determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And the last quote I have here by William Wilberforce, You may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. I also want to add this, that I read the following from an online biography of Wilberforce's life. His involvement in the abolition movement was motivated by a desire to put his Christian principles into action and to serve God in public life. He and other evangelicals were horrified by what they perceived was a depraved and unchristian trade and the greed and avarice of the owners and traders. Wilberforce sensed a call from God, writing in a journal entry in 1787, that God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, or, as we know them, moral values. I would also like to add that there was a film released in 2007 which coincided with the 200th anniversary Of Parliament's anti abolition legislation. I took the girls in my fifth and sixth grade Sunday school class to see it. I don't know if they remember it, but I will never forget it. The name of the movie is Amazing Grace, and it is a film about William Wilberforce and his lifelong struggle against the slave trade. If you have never seen this movie, I hope one day you will. I guess the movie is probably the main reason I have chosen to profile Wilberforce today out of all the other people who lived amazing lives that have mattered. I could recount stories 24 hours a day for the next several months, if not years, about people in various walks of life whose lives have made a difference in the world. But my question for everyone listening today, as well as myself, is, are we living a life that matters? What does living a life that makes a difference look like today? Can you make a conscious choice to live a life that matters? In going to various books and other publications I've collected over the years for today's program, I ran across a little tiny book, really a booklet by Max Lucado entitled, Live to Make a Difference, and I just have to read you the the conclusion to this little book. The title of the conclusion is, When We Love Them, We Love Him. There are many reasons to help people in need, but for the Christian, none is higher than this. When we love those in need, we are loving Jesus. It is a mystery beyond science, a truth beyond statistics. But it is a message that Jesus made crystal clear. When we love them, we love him. Jesus will recount one by one all the acts of kindness, every deed done to improve the lot of another person, even the small ones. In fact, they all seem small. Giving water, offering food, sharing clothing, The works of mercy are simple deeds, and yet in these simple deeds we serve Jesus. Astounding, this truth. We serve Christ by serving needy people. The Jerusalem church understood this. How else can we explain their explosion across the world? What began on Pentecost with the 120 disciples spilled into every corner of the world. Antioch, Corinth, Ephesus, Rome. The book of Acts, unlike other New Testament books, has no conclusion. That's because the work has not been finished. And this, I'm going on to recount this story from Max Lucado. Many years ago, I heard a woman discuss this work. She visited a Catholic church in downtown Miami, Florida in 1979. The small sanctuary overflowed with people. I was surprised. The event wasn't publicized. I happened to hear of the noon-hour presentation through a friend. I was living only a few blocks from the church. I showed up a few minutes early in hopes of a front-row seat. I should have arrived two hours early. People packed every pew and aisle. Some sat in windowsills. I found a spot against the back wall and waited. I don't know if the air conditioning was broken or non-existent, but the windows were open and the south-coast air was stuffy. The audience was chatty and restless, yet when she entered the room, all stirring stopped. No music, no long introduction, no fanfare from any public officials, no entourage, just three, maybe four younger versions of herself, the local priest, and her. The father issued a brief word of welcome and told a joke about placing a milk crate behind the lectern so we could see his guest. He wasn't kidding. He positioned it, and she stepped up and those blue eyes looked out at us. With what a face, vertical lines chiseled around her mouth, her nose larger than most women would prefer, thin lips as if drawn with a pencil, and a smile naked of pretense. She wore her characteristic white Indian sari with a blue border that represented the missionaries of charity, the order she had founded in 1949. Her 69 years had bent her already small frame. But there was nothing small about Mother Teresa's presence. Get me your unborn children, she offered. Opening words are just the ones I remember most. I don't know. Don't abort them. If you cannot raise them, I will. They are precious to God. Who would have ever pegged this slight Albanian woman as a change agent, born in a cauldron of ethnic strife? The Balkans. Shy and introverted as a child. Of fragile health. One of three children daughter of a generous but unremarkable businessman. Yet somewhere along her journey, she became convinced that Jesus walked in the distressing disguise of the poor, and she set out to love him by loving them. In 1989, she told a reporter that her missionaries had picked up around 54,000 people from the streets of Calcutta and that 23,000 or so had died in their care. I wonder if God creates people like Mother Teresa so he can prove his point. See, you can do something today that will outlive your life. And now I want to read you some of Mother Teresa's quotes. Spread love everywhere you go. Let no one ever come to you without leaving happier. There are no great things, only small things done with great love. Happy are those. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. Love begins at home, and it is not how much we do, but how much love we put in that action. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow has not yet come. We have only today. Let us begin. Oh, and I forgot I was going to read you this poem by Mother Teresa, the final analysis. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, people may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone may destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is all between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. In Max Lucado's book, A Gentle Thunder, here's what Max asks. You want to make a difference in your world? Live a holy life. Be faithful to your spouse. Be the one at the office who refuses to cheat. Be the neighbor who acts neighborly. Be the employee who does the work and doesn't complain. Pay your bills. Do your part and enjoy life. Don't speak one message and live another. People are watching the way we act more than they are listening to what we say. The Bible verse he points to here is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. You should be a light for other people. Live so that they will see the good things you do and will praise your Father in heaven. In wrapping up this program today on living a life that matters, I certainly cannot fail to mention the life, excuse me, I certainly cannot fail to mention the life described in the following poem the life that matters the most and has made the most difference in my life and I hope in yours as well. And here is the poem. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together— have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. And that poem, One Solitary Life, was written by James Francis. And of course, that one solitary life that has had such a deep and lasting effect on the world is Jesus Christ. I'm sure all of you are familiar, at least on some level, with the Ten Commandments. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, his answer is found in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 22 verses 36 through 40 that I'm going to read right now. Sir, which is the most important command in the laws of Moses? Jesus replied, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second most important is similar, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. All the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets stem from these two laws, and are fulfilled if you obey them. Keep only these, and you will find that you are obeying all of them. So there we have it, what Jesus himself says are the most important commandments. And I also want to read the characteristics of love, as recorded by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth, in the very familiar chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. I'm only going to read verses 4 through 8. And this is the challenge I will leave you with today. Every time love is mentioned in this passage, these four verses, five verses, I want you to substitute your own name and see how well you are doing. So here we go from 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is very patient and kind, never jealous or envious, never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or touchy. It does not hold grudges and will hardly even notice when others do it wrong. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. If you love someone, you will be loyal to him, no matter what the cost. You will always believe in him, always expect the best of him, and always stand your ground in defending him. If you are like me, you realize how many of these qualities you need help with, and a lot of help in some cases. I want to share with you what it says in the notes on these verses from my Life Application Bible. It might make you feel a little better. It does me. This love is not natural. It is possible only if God supernaturally helps us set aside our own desires and instincts so we can give love while expecting nothing in return. Thus, the closer we come to Christ, the more love we will show to others. God's kind of love is directed outward toward others, not inward towards ourselves. It is utterly unselfish. My hope for today is that you and I will live each day and love everyone so that people will know we are followers of Jesus Christ. I leave you with this verse from John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another.
0: I was sinking deep in sin Far from the peaceful shore Very deeply stained within Sinking to rise no more But the master of the sea Heard my despair and cry From the waters lifted me Now safe am I Love lifted me love lifted me when nothing else could help love lifted me love lifted me love lifted me me when nothing else could help love lifted me all my heart to him i give ever to him i'll cling in his blessed presence live ever his praises sing love so mighty and so true marriage my soul's best songs faithful loving service to to him belongs love lifted me love lifted me when